Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. So I was so excited when Pastor Chris and I first started talking about this sermon series. We were talking about his sabbatical, what, how, the, how the preaching would work, and when he, he mentioned that we were doing the Psalms, I was very excited about this. And early on, I had an idea of which psalm I wanted to work with. Psalm 37 has long been a favorite of mine. Um, it's been holding a special place in my heart uh, for reasons we'll discuss here in a little bit. Um, but I held this choice loosely. Uh, waiting to see if maybe God had other ideas, something else he wanted me to talk about. And um, I didn't hear anything, so I went with Psalm 37. Um, I've enjoyed all the Psalms for a long time. Um, as a worship leader, I love that they're in our hymns and our praise songs. Um, Rocky took us into God's songbook last week, and we talked more about the songs of praise that we sing. I've cross-stitched more than one psalm onto a pillow because I am just that cool. <laughs> Don't be jealous. I've memorized them. I've prayed them. I've sung them. So it struck me as strange a few years ago when Pastor Chris and Pastor John started another sermon series on the psalms. Uh, when Pastor John was up here preaching his sermon and he told us how much he really didn't like preaching the psalms. Preaching the psalms was so hard. And I was thinking to myself, why in the world is preaching the psalms so hard? And then a few weeks ago when Pastor Marv started his sermon on Psalm 40, he kind of made the same comment that for some pastors, picking up the psalms is a little tough. And I really couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And then it was my turn to preach on the Psalms. And so um, what they both pointed out in their slight distress about preaching the Psalms is that the Psalms are um, not objective scripture. They don't have a, um, uh, uh, they're not systematic. They don't have an overarching singular theme that you can kind of draw on. They're written over the course of centuries by many authors um, often as poetic prayers. And um, because of that, quite often, when um, we read the Psalms, uh, or, and when we preach on the Psalms, it feels a little bit sometimes like we're preaching out of somebody else's diary. But for an extremely extroverted empath like myself, the Psalms are a delight. Relationships, emotions, personal growth, bring it to me. These are my love languages. I suspect, however, that is not how the Psalms are taught in seminaries when they're training pastors. And so my enthusiasm to preach this Psalm notwithstanding, naturally there was a lot that came up as I was preparing for this Psalm that was completely unexpected, and I began to realize that perhaps Pastor John and Pastor Marv were on to something. This is an odd passage. It sounds different. The voice and the tone are maybe not what we're used to hearing in the Psalms. It's long, it's very repetitive, and at times it sounds rather dire. Doesn't it sound like we're gonna have just so much fun digging into this together? 40 verses is an awful lot to work with. 
And so as I got started, I thought, well, maybe I'll just start at the beginning and then cut it off and ignore the back half. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized, well, that's just not going to work. So as I looked and as I got into this more deeply, I realized that the promises of this psalm cut right into the heart of the gospel, that they are right in the middle, the promises in this psalm are right in the middle of everything that we hold on to as believers in Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to open the Bible in the pews in front of you or pull up whatever digital version of scripture you have, if you would like. And together we are going to read from Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to encourage you to leave your Bibles open. We may, you may want to reference them back as we move through this this morning. So now it is story time with Christine. In October of 1996, back in the 1900s, as my kids are fond of saying, I had a dear friend invite me to go on a Curcio weekend. And Rocky mentioned the upcoming weekends in our announcements this morning. They've been around for quite a while. And my affection for this psalm was solidified on my Curcio weekend. I was familiar with the psalm before that. I, I think I can remember in college, it was in a devotional or something, and um, I know that I had some verses of it written down in a journal somewhere, so I was familiar with um, a few verses of Psalm 37 by the time I got to my Curcio weekend. And um, so in, in October of 1996, I was 25 years old. I was done with college and design school. I was singing on the worship team at church. I was living at home. I was working as a medical secretary so that I could work low-paying jobs in theaters and do design work there. Duncan McGraw was still about a year and a half in my front view mirror. And I was not what you could say, I, you would not say that I was actually beating off the gentleman callers with sticks. Many of my Friday nights were spent at home cross-stitching some of those roughly bed pillows I mentioned earlier. Kind of sounds like we were in 1896 and not 1996. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, my friend invited me to go on a Curcio weekend, and I decided I could put the needle and thread down for a weekend and see what all the fuss was about. And at one point on the weekend, we're having a very deeply meaningful period of prayer in the chapel. If you've been, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and 
in this, in this time of prayer in the chapel, I was pouring my heart out to God, all the dissatisfaction and frustration and impatience I was feeling with my life at the time. It didn't look anything at all like what I wanted it to be. And um, I had quite the head of steam going at God. I was, man, I was laying it out there. And in the course of this very energetic and emotive prayer, I heard two things very clearly in my heart. The first thing I heard was, be still and know that I am God, which is the first half of verse 10 in Psalm 46. And not that this needs much explanation, but just so that we're all clear, I, I want us to be aware, that, I just want us to all understand that um, essentially what God is telling me here is to shut it, to chill out, to put a cork in it, and to please listen to me. His voice in my heart at that point was very kind, but it was unfailingly clear that I needed to stop talking. And he had my attention. And so then the next thing I heard was, delight yourself in the Lord and I will give you the desires of your heart. But you have to be patient. So I sat in the chapel and I wrestled with that for a little while. But as we left the chapel, I felt, I felt more reassured. I felt like, oh my gosh, did I just get a word from the Lord? How cool was that? And so we went on about our day, you know, doing whatever we did that day. And a little bit later on in the afternoon, um, I had my Bible and I looked up the psalm and I was like, I was amazed. Because when I went and I read the passage, the passage that I, what I had heard in my head was God said, delight yourself in the Lord and I will give you the desires of your heart. But if you still have your Bibles open, you might note that that's not, in fact, what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord had spoken to me in the first person and I was blown away. And then as I read further in the passage, I found verse 7, which also says to be still, and be patient. And so I knew that I had that I'd gotten a reassurance that kind of what I thought I had heard, I had in fact actually heard. And so here I am, more than half my life passed since that day in that chapel. And I can tell you that God has been very faithful to that word that he gave me. And that's a lovely story, but as I got deeper into my sermon preparation, I discovered that an entire and complete sermon it would not make. And so the further I read into Psalm 37, the more perplexed and confused I got. Because how in the world was I going to marry my very um, compelling personal experience with this psalm with what the rest of the psalm says? How do I pull these two things together? And again, God did not disappoint. But as I said earlier, this psalm is an odd one. Well, what do I mean by that? How is it odd? Why is it so odd? Well, to begin with, this is not a conversation between David and God. As so many of the psalms are, this psalm, instead, is one of only a handful of the 150 psalms that we are given, where God is not dressed, addressed directly or spoken of in the first person. God spoke to me in the first person when he used this psalm, but the tone in this psalm is very different. David does not address God directly, and so it sounds different when we, when we, read, read, when we read it more closely. 
This psalm reads more like uh, something from the book of Proverbs. It sounds more like stated wisdom than a, song, than, a, than a prayer or a song of praise or petition or lament or anything like that. In verse 25, then, David says to us that once I was young, but now I am old. So we know that this is a psalm written to share his wisdom. His younger psalms were probably much more emotional. 25-year-old David, like 25-year-old Christine, probably was a lot more emotional. At this point, he's later in his life. His, his, his words to and for God have a different tone to them. But David is actually conversing with us in this psalm. It is as if he has turned from addressing God, and he's sort of broken that proverbial fourth wall, and now he's talking to us, which is, like I say, it's just unusual. And in addition to its unusual voice... This psalm's structure is one of seven psalms that is arranged as an acrostic poem. And if you don't remember your seventh grade English, an acrostic poem is when each letter of the alphabet starts um, each, each section of the psalm. And that's what happens here. Um, uh, each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet starts each two-line couplet in the original Hebrew in the Bible. And so perhaps that's why it's so long. They needed, he needed 22 22 phrases to get from Aleph to Tau in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's, that's, that's how it's arranged. But only six other psalms in the Psalter are arranged that way. So there's another space where it's unusual. And the further I got into the psalm, the less it felt like what I had experienced with it. But here's what I did know, that in that chapel... I was absolutely assured of God's presence with me in that chapel, that he understood what I was struggling with. His words to me sounded like a promise, not a commandment for right living that I had to hold up or else. So as I read and I prayed more over the psalm and I recognized it is just one relational statement after the other. And now we're getting into Christine's wheelhouse. One relational statement after another. It's not a transactional give and take. And when we understand that, we can see that this is not a psalm that it is, is setting up to promise a whole lot more than it can actually deliver. David is not promising us in this song that we're not going to have trials, that we're not going to have challenges if we just do what we're told and live as good boys and girls in God's kingdom. Instead, David is telling us that the Father promises his completely unceasing care to us, no matter what we face. And he's also promising us a God-given ability to persevere through whatever those trials and tests may be. And the, word David, the words David uses in the rest of the psalm to do this are really quite compelling. So beginning in verse 3, we are encouraged to trust in the Lord and do good, to dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. And by verse 9, we read earlier, he's telling us that those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The righteous go from merely dwelling in the presence of the Lord to inheriting the land in which they dwell. And in fact, throughout the whole psalm then, the word inherit or inheritance is used five more times. That word's used six times in this whole psalm. It talks about what our inheritance is. An inheritance, as we know, is not something that we have earned. 
out of our own effort. It is a gift that comes to us as a result of somebody else's life, work, and efforts. We don't have to do anything. Somebody else just has to die. And when we live into what this psalm encourages us to, when we trust, when we enjoy, when we delight, when we dwell, when we wait, when we hope in the Lord, we are taking the steps that carry us into a deeper relationship with the Father. And by virtue of that relationship, we will come into an inheritance that is not of our own effort or making. Every time we see the word inheritance in Psalm 37, it is coupled with, it is tied very closely to the care and the provision of the Lord. Never is our inheritance in this psalm separated from the Father himself. Something else that David lands on repeatedly in this, sermon is, in this psalm is the command not to fret. In the verses we read earlier, he tells us not to fret three times. And the word fret is used in multiple translations of Scripture. I looked at several of them, and fret is used more than uh, once. And, and I didn't go to seminary, but my thought is that fret is not a good choice here. Because when we hear the word fret in English, I don't know about you, but I think of worry. I think of fear. I think of, of being afraid of something. But the Hebrew word here that's being used in this psalm is the word harach. And harach does not mean fear or worry. Harach is a verb that is telling us to not blaze up or get all fired up with anger and envy. And kind of in an old-fashioned kind of English, they might say don't fret yourself as a way to sort of calm your anger. But that's kind of not how I was hearing this, and I really had to dig a little bit deeper to make sure that I wasn't preaching on fear, when really what God is cautioning us against in this psalm is anger and envy and jealousy. Do not be angry. Do not get jealous. David is telling us that what we see going on in the world around us should not be responded to by those of us who have a faith in God with anger and resentment. Hearing be still in this psalm is another way of being told to keep our emotions in check and to turn ourselves back to God the Father. We're being cautioned against anger and envy and wrath because they will only lead to evil on our part. And so maybe you're starting to see, as we dig into this psalm, how easy it is to fall into an us-versus-them kind of trap when we read this psalm. This psalm feels a lot like, this is what the bad people do, this is what the good people do. And we don't have to get too far into it, I think, until we're at the point where it's very easy for us to see ourselves on the righteous side of that equation, because nobody wants to believe that they're on the wicked side of that equation. And so suddenly we start to think, well, I'm, I go to church, I pray, I give, I tithe, I give to the poor, I wave to my neighbor, I'm on the righteous side of this equation. And I know how good we are at pointing to all the people and things and events we see going on in our world that are on the wicked side of the equation. Nobody understands this very human impulse better than David understood this. 
And so it makes sense that this psalm came later in his life, because in the course of his life, we see that the man that we know is the man after God's own heart quite frequently does turn from evil and do good, as the psalm says. But there are also plenty of other occasions when King David himself was wicked and lying in wait for the righteous. I can't escape the idea in reading this psalm that the comparisons and the contrasts that David makes here come out of his own lived experiences. And if we don't keep our own eyes fixed on Jesus, we can just as easily become the angry and envious and hard-hearted people in the psalm that David's talking about. The conflicting experiences that David lays out here are as much of a reflection of the conflict in our own hearts as they are a reflection of the conflict between good and evil in the world around us. Make no mistake about that. We all have both of them inside of us. David isn't the only biblical chameleon who understands this in his later years. The Apostle Paul understood it too. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul cuts right into the heart of this psalm. Beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 38 of this psalm tells us that all sinners will be destroyed and the future of the wicked will be cut off. And Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ not only didn't cut us off, but he died for us, effectively cutting off sin's lasting effects on our lives. When our sins are destroyed by the blood of Christ, we are redeemed and we are no longer called sinners. Paul and David are not contradicting each other. We are able to delight ourselves in the Lord and have the desires of our hearts because of the work of Christ on the cross. We are able to dwell in the land and inherit forever, dwell in the land we will inherit forever, and have our righteousness shine like the dawn because of what the righteousness of Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Verse 39 of this psalm tells us that the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord and that he is our stronghold when troubles come. And Paul tells us that we have been justified in the sight of God by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, we can be assured that we are saved from God's wrath. Our salvation does not come from anything that we do or who we, or who we are apart from Christ. That is absolutely for sure. We're saved because we're reconciled to God because of his love for us 
through Jesus Christ. And if we choose to read this psalm as simply a separation of the sheep and the goats, we're going to end up in a quandary of legalism and righteousness that we define by our own good works. Are we the wicked in this scenario or are we the righteous? What we need to realize is that David's exhortations to us in this psalm are pressing into the same understanding of the character of God that David himself has learned through a lifetime of living in the shadow of God's care, of abject moral failure on David's part, after which he, did, he just turned back to his father and was so repentant and realized that he was nothing without his father. Paul's words in Romans come from the same place of understanding. And we too have to understand that the only way we avoid the fate of the wicked in this psalm is to turn from evil and turn towards the Lord, to trust in him that the life we want is possible, and to stop looking to the world to provide it for us. Because only God can do that. To take this psalm to God in prayer, which sometimes is, might not be easy because we aren't addressing God directly, we have to spend time listening to what God is using the psalm to say. We can't just sit there and talk to God and spill it all out and not stop down and listen to what it is that he's saying. These are my words of experience with this song, with this psalm speaking to you. I've had this experience. In case you've forgotten, he'll tell you to shut it. Do we hear in this psalm a promise of the Father's completely unceasing care for us? Do we know that when we put our trust and hope in him, and we stop allowing our desires to be pulled along by the way of the world instead of the will of God, that he'll be with us. That pull is easy to give into. I know we all suffer from it. But it will always lead us into suffering and disappointment. I am the sinner and the saint in this psalm, as we all are. I am the one who blazes up in anger, in envy, and in jealousy, and frustration with what goes on in the world around me, the larger world and some of the most close details of my own life. I allow all of it to get in the way of my relationship with Jesus and everything he's prepared for me. But I'm also the one who is learning how not to do that, how to turn away from that pull of the world and to delight in the Lord and allow him to bring me the desires of my heart in his time. David lived that same kind of dual existence, as did Paul, as do we all. But the thing that we can be assured of, just as both Paul and David were, is that the brokenness in us is not going to prevent us from living into God's eternal promises for us right now or after we die. Our brokenness is not going to keep us from our redemption. 
God has eternal promises for us to live into right now. And all we have to do to grab onto them is to stay focused on Jesus. I'm a believer who needs help in overcoming my unbelief. I love that passage from Mark. God works on both parts of who I am, and that is where this psalm is landing. This psalm is not about running a dividing line through the good people and the bad people. It's about running a dividing line through our own hearts. This is what God is working on, to pull us out of our wicked and unrighteous ways and push us into the place where we understand his will for us, where we understand the love of Jesus and the character that we can have formed in us that looks like the character of Christ because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. God refines us and sanctifies us and redeems us from all the things that cannot stand in his presence. And he protects in us, he builds up in us, and he exalts in us those parts that have chosen the way of Jesus. He pours faith and hope and love into us so that we can in turn carry them out into the kingdom right now and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.